Many of the names in the Bible that refer to our Lord are nothing less than palatial and august. Son of God, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the bright and morning star, he that should come, Alpha and Omega, and many more. They are phrases that stretch the boundaries of human language in an effort to capture the uncapturable, the grandeur of God. And try as they might to draw, uh, and try as they might to draw as near as they may, they always fall short. Hearing them is somewhat like hearing a Salvation Army Christmas band on the street corner playing Handel's Messiah. Good try, but it just doesn't work. The message is too majestic for the medium. And such it is with language. The phrase, there are no words to express, is really the only one that can honestly be applied to God. No names do him justice. But there is one name which recalls a quality of the master that bewildered and compelled those who knew him. It reveals a side of him that, when recognized, is enough to make you fall on your face. It is not too small, nor is it too grand. It is a name that fits like the shoe fits Cinderella's foot. Jesus. And you shall call him Jesus. Is there a sweeter name that represents our hope in the Christian world? There isn't, is there? All the titles that apply to Christ, they're all titles. But his name is Jesus. No, his last name is not Christ. That's a title, which means Messiah. His name is Jesus. Just like God said in Exodus 3, my name is Yahweh. Jesus means Yahweh saves. His name is Jesus. Well, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. We have uh, made it pretty far, haven't we? We stopped and looked at the beginning just to kind of review our journey. We looked at the Magi in Matthew, and we jumped ahead, or I should say after Christ's birth by a year and a half to two years, and took a look at these wonderful kingmakers who came and uh, pronounced that uh, Jesus was the king. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him because we saw his star. And then we went before Jesus' birth and looked at Zechariah and the prophecy of Zechariah and Luke. We're going to see just a little bit about that one again today. And we, um, we looked there because he is the father of John the Baptist. And so he talked about John the Baptist preparing the way for this Messiah. Then last week we jumped way back several hundred years, 650 years or so, to Isaiah and looked at Isaiah 9 and what was going on in the northern regions of the land of Israel when the Assyrians attacked and this wonderful promise that comes out, this prophecy about wonderful counselor, mighty God. Remember that? We looked at that. So we're slowly getting closer to the birth, aren't we? We're working our way there. Today we're going to look at what the angel said to Mary and Mary's response. It's very, very important. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to Luke 1. There's one in your seat, and I know many of you have them on your tablets and phones, so go ahead and pull it out. Advent, it's a wonderful time of the year. It's a time of anticipation. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of we're just longing for the coming of the Lord. 
much like our children. And you remember when you were young, waiting for Christmas, waiting for Christmas Day. And that's what Advent in the, in the life of the church is all about, to create within us that sense of anticipation and waiting. We can't wait. Well, now we're just a couple of days away from the birth. And so we're going to back up and we're going to look at what happened with Mary and what was told. Let's start with just kind of the basic story. You heard it read this morning. And then we're going to look at the kind of the so what. What does this mean? Mary is now told about her future. She's the chosen one. I don't think it's possible to overstate how significant and perhaps surprising and traumatic this might be. Mothers, how would you like it if you were told you're going to be the mother of God? That would be a surprise. <laughs> what happened? What did he say? Dear mother of God. Dear mother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but to put this in the context, the, the women of Israel had long awaited this moment. Based on, the, based on Genesis 3, when Eve was told, one of your sons will destroy this enemy, this began a quest throughout Israel's history looking for the son. That's why if a woman was barren, it was considered to be a curse because uh, switching from female to male metaphors, she was taken out of the game, so to speak. And so every woman that had gave birth to a son wondered, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And then one who is not even looking, she's not even married yet, is told, you are the one. It's an amazing, amazing story. The little details in the story give us a lot of insight. In verse 26, we say something about the timing. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we're going to come back to that. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. I wonder what it's like to be an angel. You, go. <laughs> Here's the message, right? And they get sent. Uh, Gabriel's a famous one. He's a popular one. He gets sent to, to do God's bidding. Well, Joseph, a little bit later here, he's identified as a descendant of David, which is interesting. A little tiny detail, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, this is a little detail because uh, it's going to talk about Jesus' rights and uh, when he's adopted by his father. But the whole story is from Mary's perspective. So he just throws in this little detail here, but then he shifts the story to Mary's perspective. The greeting to Mary is very formal. Hail, gifted lady is another way that you could say it. Uh, it's very formal and confusing. Again, women, I ask the question, what would happen if an angel came to you and said, hail, gifted lady? I think you'd probably be terrified. She kind of looks out. She's very troubled, verse 29. Mary's confused, as you would be. She is favored in a way that she is about to find out. And then what does he say? You're going to give birth. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him what? Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. 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 We learn from Matthew that he's given the title Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. And now we find out his name, Jesus, Yahweh saves. God has not forgotten us. He has remembered. He remembered us. 
all of our cries, all of our struggles. And here it is. God remembered us. The time has come. He's told that, she's told that her son will be given the throne of David in verse 32 and 33. A clear reference to 2 Samuel 7 when God says to David, I will place a, one of your descendants on the throne and his kingdom will last forever. It's a clear reference. This son is to be a king. So Mary just found out all these surprising things. You are chosen. You're the chosen one. The one who I chose is God. You're about to give birth to a son. He is the Messiah. He is God with us. And he's going to be a king. It doesn't get more traumatic than that. So she asked the appropriate question, how can this be? That's a logical question, I would think. How on earth can this be? He says, I'm not even married. And what does he say? He says the same thing, basically, that's said in Isaiah chapter 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Remember that phrase from last week? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. God is going to make this happen. And he gives the information on how that's going to happen here. Now, the form of this story is very similar to the one we just passed in chapter 1 with Zechariah being told about John the Baptist. If you lay them out side by side, they're very similar. It's a very common way that uh, uh, the Bible pictures angels. We see it in Judges. We several, see it in several other places where when God comes and makes an announcement, he follows this form. But there's some really strong, strong contrast between all of these, and I'm just going to run a few of them by you. John the Baptist was told, uh, was told about John the Baptist that he would be great. But Jesus has said, uh, Jesus is told that he will be son of the Most High. Of John, it said he will prepare his people. But of Jesus, it said he will rule his people. He will be a king. Of John, it says his role is temporary. But of Jesus, it says his role is eternal. John is said to be a prophet. Jesus is said to be the Son of God. John is filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is said to be the Holy One. And later we learn he brings the Holy Spirit. So there's this real contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. He really is preparing the way. You may remember when we looked at Zechariah's prophecy. Well, there's more than that. We talk about Zechariah and Mary. Let's look at the two of them. Zechariah challenges the angel. What does Mary do? She accepts it. Zechariah asks for confirmation. How do I know this is true? Sounds a little bit like Gideon. Mary doesn't do that. She just ponders, how is it possible? How is it possible? And then Mary responds in obedient faith at the very end of that little section. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Verse 38. May it be to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Simple obedience. Quiet obedience. She's a nobody. She's not serving in the temple. She's now placed in a position of incredible vulnerability. She is a virgin who is betrothed, which means that she's legally married, even though she's not married. She is a nobody, and she just found out she's about to get pregnant. There's no worse place to be in the world, I would imagine, than right here. If God doesn't intervene at this point, then she is shamed from here on out. 
And she just responds quietly, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. You find yourself responding that way, by the way? When you find yourself in a vulnerable spot, but you're very clear that the Lord has put you there? May it be to me according to your word. Sweet words, aren't they? God chose the right one. But then there's also a contrast in the signs. Zechariah is stuck, struck mute. Remember, he can't speak. But what is Mary's sign? Um, How will this be, she asked, in verse 34, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, she didn't ask, but the Lord went one step further and said, let me give you some confidence. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So her simple faith prompted the Lord to go one step further and say, let me explain to you, let me give you a sign so that you know this is happening. Your cousin, who's old, is going to give birth. That's a sign, clear sign. So the door in this dark world has just cracked open. Darkness. All of a sudden we have a beam of light. How many times have we seen that in the last three weeks, right? The people in darkness will see a great light. We've seen it in the New Testament. We've seen it in the Old Testament. We saw it several places. The door just cracked open. We're now getting a glimpse of what is to come. But the story is a little bigger than just simply Mary and Luke because Luke does some amazing things with it. He has this kind of this cascading series of things that start to unfold in Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3. We've, we've given you some of the pieces to the puzzle. Now I'm going to try to put them together. So Luke is in the process. He wants us to see this series of things that are happening. He starts with the, the prophecies themselves. Mary's song, uh, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And then you move over to Zechariah's song in verse 67. Zechariah says in verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then a little bit later, right after the son is born, Simeon in the temple in verse 29 says, Lord, sovereign Lord, as you have promised. And you have these three succeeding praises to God. These are very famous in church history. The first one we call the Magnificat. Glorify the Lord. The Lord, uh, my soul glorifies the Lord. So Mary's song we call the Magnificat. When we look at Zechariah, we call this the Benedictus. These are Latin terms all based on the first word in each of the, the songs or praises. Benedictus, praise be to the Lord. And the third one from Simeon is a Dimittis, sovereign Lord, as you have promised. You promised and you fulfilled it. So there's this cascading movement here. In Mary's song, the Magnificat, Israel is in focus. And she appeals to God and his promise to Israel. So Israel is the highlight of this passage. And we get a glimpse of the promise given to Abraham. Let's just read it. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. By the way, that's language perhaps out of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant is what Jesus would be, and she identifies herself in that long trajectory. I'm part of of the service of God. When you come to know the Lord, your life no longer belongs to you. You become a servant of the Most High. Your life becomes a billboard. We've talked about that many times. You were shown grace so that you know how to show grace. You're loved so that you know how to love. You're shown redemption so that you know how to live redemptively in the lives of the people around you. Remember all that language? So she's identifying herself in this long history. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. See the role reversal? She's a servant, and because of God's action, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. There's another one of those reversals. The proud, he just scatters them. He has brought down, verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. There's another reversal that we've come to know in Christianity. God surprises the world. He does the opposite from what we expect. So he brings down rulers and he lifts up the humble, which is what she just said. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, talking about herself. From now all generations will call me blessed. And then verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Another surprise, another reversal. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. And here we have just a glimpse of his promise to Abraham, verse 55. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. There's a glimpse. Now look what happens when we move to Zechariah. Remember when we had looked at Zechariah's prophecy, we, we highlighted the two metaphors, right? One was um, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in verse 69. That's David. He's raising up a servant of David, which is Jesus. And then he goes on down in verse uh, 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven... To shine on those living in darkness. And we'll go back into the Old Testament. And that phrase, living in darkness, is a clear reference to the Gentiles. That phrase is used of Gentiles throughout the, throughout the prophets. So here we see this whole promise to the, to the uh, Gentiles even clearer. Even clearer. Then you move over to Simeon's words. This is after Jesus is born in chapter 2, verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised... You may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding Jesus. Holding him in his arms. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of who? All the nations. There it is. It's bright and shining. It's all of its grandeur. In the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He did it. God did it. You see it? This is what Christmas is all about. He did it. 
all the promises, all the fulfillment that he talks about is coming, all the hope that he keeps planting, the seed of hope, he did it. And we sit here today because he did it. Because almost everyone in the room is a Gentile. He did it. That's what Christmas is about. Doesn't stop there. By the way, we can keep going with this on and on and on for a long time. I just picked out some of these. I want you to see with me this movement through here, what he says about this Jesus, about this Messiah, because it's absolutely wonderful. In the prophecy to Mary, her son is called Holy. Chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Then in verse 43, he's called Lord. This is when she's talking to Elizabeth. But why am I so favored, Elizabeth asks, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Here Jesus is called Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 which we're going to read this story on Christmas Eve, so I'm only going to give you a glimpse. He's called Savior. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So Jesus is called Holy Lord and Savior. But look what's mingled in amongst all this is God has called all these things as well. In Mary's song in verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. God is holy. And yet the Old Testament says only God is holy. She just calls God holy. So Jesus is said to be the holy one, and God is holy. Then in verse 46, God is called Lord. That's how Mary begins. My soul glorifies the Lord, magnifies the Lord. He's called the Lord. And then in verse 47, he's called Savior, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior so the titles that are applied to God are now applied to this baby that's coming. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He's done it. We're two days away from celebrating. He did it. He did it. God pulled it off. Surprised everybody. Stunned the world. Wasn't what anybody expected. He chose the person least likely to be chosen. I bet in her high school yearbook it doesn't say likely to be the mother of God. <laughs> he chose the person least likely to be chosen. And he chose a time when no one was looking. And he chose a place that no one paid attention to. He did it. He pulled it off. You see it? It's no way to overstate how important this moment is in, the, in our redemptive history. Now, what I want to ask you is, have I told the story in such a way that you can sense this deep love? This passionate love of God. Today we're celebrating love. It is love, right, Mark? Right. It's love. Good, I picked the right one. <laughs> no, can you see it? I mean, it's with the candles. We worked our way through, didn't we? To get here. Can you see 
just a glimpse of how deep God's love is for you. He did it. <laughs> I was raised in a tradition where we didn't celebrate Christmas. And the reasoning that I was given, which might parents later change their perspective, was that if we pick one day of the year, then we're likely not to celebrate it the rest of the year. Kind of logical in a backward sort of way. And so when I finally turned to Christ at the age of 19, and I began to learn about who Jesus really was, then all of a sudden Christmases from that time on became one of my favorite moments. You can ask Nancy or the kids. We, we do Advent. We decorate the house. We, we've done all kinds of things over the years to stop and ponder. The church did a wonderful thing in its early history by setting aside this season of Advent to help us remember the presence of Christ. God with us, Emmanuel. When we get to Easter, just to give you a glimpse, we'll look at the work of Christ on the cross. We've already planned it out and have a special time prepared for that time as well. And then the rest of the year is focused on the life of Christ. Because Hebrews argues that his life is really important. Because it's because of his life that he's qualified to be our high priest. It's not because he died. That's part of it. Not because he's God. That's part of it. It's because he lived the life like we did. He just lived the life. And he did it the right way. And he becomes the picture for us. So all parts of the life of Christ are captured throughout the year. And we'll do that in our church. There's no way to overstate. This is the beginning of that journey. God did it. He pulls it off. And it reflects his deep love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the deep, passionate, abiding love that you uh, have shown so many ways through the Bible, but in a special way during this season. Thanks for giving us the, the prophecies and the stories and the songs and the, the rejoicing of the people at that time so that we can share in that, that rejoicing. We can share in that anticipation. We can look forward to the expect, expectation of what's happening with your son. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our cries for recognizing our bondage to sin and for coming to rescue us. Thank you for coming down to become one of us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice to be like us, to become like us, to experience the world in every way that we do. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.